Hello and welcome to In Orbit, the fortnightly podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. This podcast is brought to you by the satellite applications Catapult, a UK technology and innovation company driving economic growth through the commercialization of space. Now then, across this new series, we're going to be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing how artificial intelligence can be used to enhance Earth observation. And I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Freddie Kalisis, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, James Parr, founder of Trillium Technologies, and Moral Bayer, Senior Earth Observation Consultant at the Satellite Applications Catapult. Most of the images generated by satellites will never be seen by human eyes. There simply aren't enough human eyes on Earth, let alone trained experts, to sift through the terabytes of imagery generated daily and extract valuable intelligence and insight. Big data and AI approaches can be used for innovative and cost-effective management and the processing of data, learning to recognize patterns and finding correlations that humans would otherwise miss. New insights unlocked in this way offer the potential to deliver value to a range of users across markets such as finance, insurance, transport, and agriculture. Now, if you're a little bit lost by some of these terms, fear not. We shall go slowly. Welcome to the studio. Hey, you know what? This feels a bit odd because I'm for the last three years, I haven't really interviewed anyone in an actual studio in the flesh. It's all been yeah, you're not in your box. We're actually sitting in the same room. Mm. As is, is that weird? Yeah, that's exciting. Does that feel slightly odd now, or is that? Oh, that's great. That's a um, <laughs> is it first for you? Freddie's never. It's <laughs> never sat in a room with anyone before COVID. Life didn't exist. Yeah, it feels uh, yeah, it feels good. Anyway, listen, hey, Freddie, uh, welcome. James, welcome. Maral, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for coming and taking the time to to be here. You're all involved in this sector, but in slightly different ways. I think you all sort of interconnect, and yet you have different specialities, which we're going to come on to in a minute. Um, this is an interesting one because we, we've got some terms. I think we need to define first. Okay, so uh, artificial intelligence for Earth observation. Okay, these are terms that I know our erudite listeners will probably know all about, but I think for those who are new to the subject, I think we should define our terms first. So artificial intelligence is something we hear a lot about. Who wants to have a go at explaining artificial intelligence? You're looking at me. So. I'm looking at you, Freddie. I, I, the reason I'm looking at you is because before we started recording, Freddie was like, this is going to go on for hours. How can we do artificial intelligence in, in less than four hours? Have a go. Well, I'll start from a variant of AI that's known as weak artificial intelligence. This is the one that we use daily in our What's it called? Weak? Did you say weak? Weak, yeah. Weak, so okay. this is as opposed to, to strong artificial intelligence, which is like the first dream of creating intelligent machines that behave like us, that can interface like in a very human way, that can solve any task very intelligently. But weak artificial intelligence is the type of AI that we have on our phones, when they can transcribe spoken language, when they can translate from English to Chinese and vice versa, when they can automatically detect humans 
uh, in, in photos and detect vehicles from, from flat satellite data. So that's what we mean weak artificial intelligence. So weak in the sense that you take a lot of these menial cognitive tasks and you allow a machine to learn to perform that task by giving it lots and lots of examples. And yeah, like the whole point is that there's just so much data out there generated daily by satellites that we just don't have enough human eyes to plow through these images and perform certain detection tasks. So we use machines to scale that detection task. So basically machines, computers, algorithms, mimicking the human brain. Because one of the things that you hear a lot about is this idea of general intelligence as opposed to specific intelligence. So and you mentioned weak intelligence there. So kind of where are we on this on this sort of curve? Is, is it weak intelligence because we haven't invented better intelligence yet? Or does the weak AI do a specific jobs, like menial tasks, like you say, and, and, and a better AI will come along in the future? Or? It only means in a way that it's very specific to the task. Yeah. Like a realistic AI nowadays is good at a specific thing. Like, let's say, detecting agricultural fields in, in the UK. If you wanted to use the same model somewhere in Africa, it would probably fail because it hasn't seen enough data. It cannot generalize to new areas. So it's very weak in that sense. It's very specific. But general artificial intelligence, uh, we usually think of it as a human being level of AI yeah. that can just generalize instantly, instantaneously to another task. I'm always blown away by AI. I mean, even the weak stuff. But of course, presumably AI is, is nothing without data. Data is the thing that it feeds on. Same as humans. Like you wouldn't develop cognitively if you were stuck in a black box throughout your childhood. Yes, no, exactly, exactly. Okay, so basically there's not enough brains, there's not enough eyes to, to look at the data. So that, that's kind of AI, but okay, let's move on to the next term, Earth observation. Well, Maral, tell us a little bit about what that is for, for someone who's never come across the idea of Earth observation. Mm -hmm. Well, I like to think about Earth observation as almost like these macroscopes, you know. So when uh, we invented microscopes, we can suddenly look and understand um, how the world works on this tiny scale. So we've solved diseases, right? Mm. But Earth observation is just these huge macroscopes floating around the Earth. In so orbit. they're, yes, exactly. Yes, in orbit macroscopes. <laughs> yeah. When we think about that, though, when we think about satellites in orbit, we generally, to those people who aren't involved in the industry, they generally think about things looking outwards, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope or, well, I suppose communication satellites. But this idea now that we've got that a whole... We have, that we are in space looking back at home, at Earth, to solve problems on Earth, right? Mm. And so... And, and a really nice kind of example of this is that recently uh, news made me really happy, which was basically a bunch of these Antarctic glaciers have been named after the satellites that have first uh, kind of quantified climate change and how the kind of glaciers are moving. So a bunch of these Antarctic glaciers are named after the European Space Agency satellites, ERS, NVSAT and Sentinels, and the kind of American, uh, you know, the Landsat and even the Japanese uh, satellites like ALOS. So already satellites have helped us uh, understand the world at the macro level, at this kind of climatic level. Interesting. So just give us a, give our listeners an idea of when we talk about satellites, in the late 1950s, there was one, sort of Sputnik, and that didn't do very much. So how many are up there, and, and, and are they all looking down at Earth? What, what's the, 
what's the scope? Well, that's the quantity is, of them. How many do that's, we have? I mean, how many? I think that is changing all the time. And Freddie, you're looking at me like maybe you know the number. What's the number? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> a lot. I think. I think it's but, basically uh, a lot. in the order of tens of thousands right now. Really? But I can tell you that uh, you know there's been a really big change in the way satellites um, have been um, the, the the kind of the way we put satellites into space because. Before, for example, uh, we had satellites the size of big fridges, right? Mm -hmm. And to send that huge satellite into space uh, is very expensive and it takes, you know, decades of research because uh, it's so expensive to put it in. But now we have uh, what is called, as you know, a small satellite, which is the size of a bread and to send that bread into space. So, the, I mean, we can get back into this, but yeah, but it's actually, changing. Well, the, you know, the launch is changing, so we can send more things up there, oh, exactly. cheaper. Um, well, just just explain to us. You, you touched on glaciers there, and, and I think sort of obviously that ties in with climate change. That's the thing that I think most people think of. Just tell us why Earth observation is so important, and and what is what are the types of things that we can learn by having these microscopes, if you like, these these things, telescopes looking back at the Earth, James. It's a very exciting time, actually, because I think the combination, as Freddie said, of AI that can actually absorb all this data and start making sense of it, plus the fact we now have the ability to see the Earth optically. We could also see it in multispectral and hyperspectral, so looking at different um, uh, sort of forms of energy so we can make more detailed assessments on things, but also uh, radar, so technology called synthetic aperture radar, which allows us to see things in 3D and also through clouds and see what's happening at night. Mm. And all of these instruments and, and satellites are allowing us to sort of build a picture of what's happening on Earth in a way we've never been able to see before. And then we use AI to actually make sense of all this data. So the, for the first time, we can sort of do a full body scan, so to speak, of our planet sort of see the pulse of the planet, all of the um, variables which matter in terms of managing how it's going to change. And um, this matters, this is important for both how we manage our systems, but also planetary systems, biospheres and those sorts of things. This might sound like a really stupid question, but why do you need to go into space to do that? Like, What does low Earth orbit give you that the technology you couldn't just do on the ground? Like, Why do you need to be there in the well, uh, yeah, it allows you to zoom out, really. I think you have to understand what remote sensing really is here, right? So people don't really appreciate that remote sensing is about understanding properties of things from a distance without actually going there and physically interacting with the object. And the only way to do that is by capturing the light that it emits. Think about that for a second. So when the farther out we go from Earth, the more of, it, of its light we see. And what better way to do that than being in an orbit around the Earth? So really what, what satellites are doing is like, you know, as James said, optical satellites uh, capture light in particular band of uh, frequencies that pertain to visible light and near visible light. Perhaps even, you know, sometimes you wanna look into Frequencies that pertain to radar, which are slightly larger frequencies, sorry, wavelengths. But the nice thing about that is that the device itself can emit those, that light down into the earth and then as it reflects back, it recaptures it. So by that way interacting with the object through light, it can tell certain properties about the object. Mm -hmm. So it's all about playing with light when in, in earth observation. That's interesting. Light and play. Also, yeah. <laughs> 
the, just the way you explained it there, it's almost like you you step back from a picture. From a you, if you look too closely at a painting in the National Gallery, it doesn't make sense. But then you kind of take a few steps back, and suddenly it's like, oh, okay. I, I it's like a Monet. Like a Monet, exactly. When you look so closely, the brushstrokes are so huge that you don't see what's well, happening. Well, that's it. But if you look at a yeah, if you look at a oil painting really close, you see completely different things. You see the you see the human. Touch exactly yes. brushstroke, but suddenly you step back and you see what was in the mind of the painter, I suppose, and, and uh, in, a, in a completely different way. Okay, well, just climate change. I guess that's the obvious one. Yeah. What what else do we do, do, do these satellites tell us? When you say we get a full body scan of the Earth, that's a nice way of thinking about it. What else is are they looking for in their in the along the with their different frequencies, different wavelengths? Well, I think the one that um, often gets talked about is shipping. So managing fisheries, but also piracy. And of course, there's lots of applications in reconnaissance and situational awareness in the military, those sorts of things. For I was example. going to ask yeah. you about military. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, presumably it's having that kind of technology is pretty good if you're a military general and, and you want to understand the situation on the ground. Well, in Ukraine, one of the reasons why they had suspicions that it was going to happen is they could see all of the Russian armaments starting to build up on the Ukrainian border. Mm. And this was actually from open public data. Mm -hmm. um, but this uh, was something that allowed them to realise that actually something was about to happen. So shipping, obviously we, we can see ships. So, I mean, is it a case that being able to see things like shipping lanes will then inform us of how to do things better or, or like what, what's the reason why we want to kind of look at things like shipping? Um, I guess, uh, James, you're referring to the AIS signal being also detected from... Um, so uh, this is um, very interesting because basically um, every ship above a certain size has to have this AIS signal and it's actually designed for ships to be able to not collide uh, on the ocean. But then someone said, let's just stick a satellite into space uh, for a, with an AIS detector and see if we can detect it from space. And we can. And then we can even track where they're going. So this is, a, this is like, a, a, like an identification system. Signal. Yes, exactly. Um, and then uh, as you're tracking it, uh, different fishing behavior show different things. So for example, like long line fishing creates these kind of loops, these uh, hooks, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can train an AI to detect these hooks. Or, you know, uh, like trawling looks different or fishing looks different. So there's this like, whole world of proxies we didn't think it was possible. <clears throat> there's a case study. Uh, this is kind of why we're doing this. This is an example of why we're doing this. So, for example, uh, the Thai government, to trade fishes with the European Union, you have to have this kind of green card system, right? So if you have the green cards, then you can sell your fishes. Whereas if you have the umber card or red card, you can't. The Thai government was on the umber card, but then they've used this AI for EO within this particular use case uh, to get their green card. And so if that's not impact, I don't know what is. Basically, can all human activity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as well as the health of the planet can now be monitored using satellites to some degree. Or even large animals, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, well, let's, okay, yeah. well, we might come back to climate in a moment. Give us some other ones that people might not think satellites are being used for. Earth Peng, penguin dung. Penguin dung. Yeah. Why, wh so why they, do we? They can see the colonies of penguins from looking at their dung on the ice. All those sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> elephants, you can, although elephant is just about a pixel, um, you can see their shadows. Oh my God. Yeah, and then Ricky Actually, when you say yeah. pixel, like what mm. kind of resolution are we, are we sort of talking about, particularly in visible light? Well, the best uh, resolution commercially available right now is something like 30 centimeters per pixel. 
So this is, this is enough to resolve the shape of a car or a very small hut mm -hmm. in the desert. Yeah, and you know, this is just commercially available. I think if you go into more um, spy um, kind of level of uh, intelligence, That's where I want you to can go. probably look into- That's what I want. <laughs> well, purportedly, it's 10 centimeters or even, or even lower than that. Is it a case, Morel, that you know, we have this technology and people see it being used in particular areas that suddenly People are like, I know we can use it for this and come up with new ideas that can be used for. Uh, absolutely. So, for example, mining, uh, you might think, so, for example, you know, we are in the midst of an energy transition and metals will be the key to energy transition. And so where are all those metals that are going to come? So satellites are actually used for, for example, mineral exploration. So uh, at the Catapult, for example, we've done some research on, uh, you know, looking for lithium in the UK using satellite data. Or um, my particular research is very much concerned with making sure that mine waste doesn't collapse and destroy the environment. So we need mining because it's at the core of our energy transition. But then this metal hungry future means that there's going to be so much mine waste and all these other things that nobody's thinking or people we need to think more about and that needs to be solved. And satellites, from my perspective, have a huge role to play in this. So really, it's like thinking about the problems that we face, things like energy transition, and then being able to apply what we learn from our eyes in the sky, as it, as it were. Exactly. And well, that, that's, that's my that's next it. question, you know, because obviously you can generate lots and lots of data and then you can have things like artificial intelligence that can process some of this data and make sense of it. But ultimately, it's up to us in terms of, kind of what we then do with it and, yeah. and, how, we, and how we behave. That actually touches on kind of the second uh, main use case of AI. So the first use case that I mentioned was uh, about scaling menial cognitive tasks. Mm -hmm. The second one is about uh, defined complexity. So there are th certain patterns in nature that we humans are just not wired to perceive in the right, let's say, temporal scale or special scale, like because we're not tall enough or because our, our laughs are too short or we just we don't cannot perceive the right wavelengths, right? So what AI is really good at doing is by using statistics and correlations of data, it can it can perceive captured cues that we're just not wired. So pattern, pattern seeking. But pattern recognition, pa pattern seeking. I mean, humans are pretty good at pattern recognition, generally. That's yeah, what but we, within what we our do, senses. Yeah, within mm. our senses, like yeah. at the right temporal scales, you know, in the order of hours. But if something lasts years, we're probably going to kind of forget about it. Yeah. So we need something to capture this, this, this data and then something to analyze it. Yeah. Do you have any sort of examples of that where, where AIs use kind of pattern recognition to... Well, there's a good one, which is um, the relationship between aerosols and the persistence of clouds. So clouds form because of droplets in the air, aerosols. We can't see them, but of course satellites can. But an AI plus that satellite data can then compute how long those clouds are going to stay in the, in the sky. And that matters because clouds are reflective. And so the, we can then use that prediction to figure out how much energy is going back into space. It's really interesting. So both of these technologies, EO, Earth Observation and Artificial Intelligence, they kind of need each other, don't they? They, they do. They, one yeah. doesn't, EO doesn't work on its own without, without having the, the grunt work that artificial intelligence sort of offers in terms of painting a picture that we can understand. Well, similarly with methane, this is another climate use case, um, methane 
requires human beings to see the plumes it, just because of the characteristics of methane. Um, the, the spectral signature also interferes um, and, and you can see rooftops and requires a human to go, well, actually, that's a plume and not a rooftop. But we can now use AI to do that task. And so the huge task of mapping the world's methane output can now be done by AI. Yeah. Yeah, Fred. An interesting one, I think, also is uh, you can, and, and this relates to uh, food security and you know having enough food on the planet. You need AI to look at the temporal patterns of how a crop field looks like across time. So, a healthy crop field looks a certain way, and infected crop field looks a very different way and a human cannot just be there all the time to observe it and measure it all the time. This is really easy to do using other observation data and having a very crude model to understand uh, healthy versus not healthy. Um, at this point, I guess maybe um, to build up on uh, what Fred is saying, uh, to introduce the concept of, I like to think about materials on the ground kind of have their own spectral signatures, like the yes. way humans have yes. fingerprints, right? Yeah. So to build up on what Fred is saying, the kind of healthy vegetation and the unhealthy vegetation have different uh, spectral signatures in the near infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So then you can train an AI algorithm to kind of understand which fields on a huge scale are showing this healthy pattern and which fields are not showing this unhealthy pattern. And if you even go further, then you can say, this time last year, this many fields showed healthy signature at this time compared to this year. So this year, do we expect the same amount of food grains yeah. as last year? And what, what is the global implications of that? It's unbelievable. Actually, I, I, a few years ago, I did a, a documentary series where we used exactly that technology looking at the near-infrared for archaeology, actually looking at the, at the signatures that the ground gave us in Egypt. And we found all kinds of things that nobody had. And actually, in archaeology, it's quite interesting. You know, in, Back in the day, people would do exactly that. They would, in aeroplanes, early aeroplanes, have a, a look to see, you know, just with our eyes at the ground to see, you know, how the earth had changed. But actually being able to do it from space now and being able to do it not just with visible light, but through infrared and, and, and other AI. signatures. And, and, and to see plus AI, yeah. exa exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe AI wasn't invented. <laughs> it was just <laughs> us looking at things going, wait, what's that? It's a pyramid. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, a, there's an interesting type of in instrument called LiDAR. I like um, LiDAR. We got them on my phone. My blinking iPhone has LiDAR, LiDAR now. Oh, I'm like, yeah, crikey. Yeah. Uh, so it's done from an airplane and it's, it shoots hundreds of thousands of laser beams on the ground per second. And, you know, in the Amazon, they've done it and they found old infrastructure from, you know, civilizations that we didn't think were were possible, mm. you know, uh, data back in the day. So now it's 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 uh, creating a new revolution in archaeology. I think actually new revolution. It's, it's in every form of human activity, we seem to be new revolutions in terms of what AI and what EO can can do. Just the clarity by which it presents the world and the new ways of seeing, and then being able to interpret that. It's just phenomenal. I think it's bigger than people think. Oh, it's big. Well, here's yeah. the thing. How come, like, we're sitting here in Oxford and, you know, you all work in this area and, and we, we know what it is, but generally I don't think people are, are aware. Like, for example, we have conversations like, we shouldn't be sending things into space because it's bad for the environment. We wouldn't understand climate change if it wasn't for putting things into space, presumably. Yeah, presumably what yeah. we know about climate change yeah. is because we have things like satellites and yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that kind of touches on on the other main use case of Earth observation, which is like we talked a lot about SDGs, the sort of sustainable development goals, and how it can you know help nonprofits. Mm-hmm. But I think Earth observation is also being used to have, to answer fundamental questions on climate, ecology, society, and sustainability. Whereas you know SDGs is more about mitigation and and protection, like scientific questions is more about like acquiring a fundamental understanding mm. of the processes in the earth and a very good way to do that is look looking at it at the micro scale mm. in, in, in large uh, spatial scales but also in very large uh, temporal scales mm-hmm. mm. there's a big one we haven't mentioned and that's weather yes um and so this is this incredible feat of science and engineering that we don't think about but the ability to have like a seven-day weather forecast, which we're now used to, this is incredible. Especially in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it's amazing for everything from shipping to airlines to, you know, our supply chains. You know, we rely absolutely on space data for weather prediction. But to your point, people have taken that for granted. And I think it's about a trillion dollar a year value to the human race, just the, the ability to predict the weather. But if you add the ability to join climate predictions to weather predictions and close that gap, Mm -hmm. which is what AI is starting to do, Mm -hmm. then you have the ability to start looking years into the future and start making plans and knowing how that world's going to change. And this is the world of, sorry, the the study of um, Earth systems. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting having all this technology, satellites, Earth observation, we get this clarity and we get an interpretation of it through AI. It doesn't necessarily, though, make the world a better place. Presumably, it's still up to us about what we do with it. We still have to make decisions. And, and you know, but decisions is, is having the... all that information, is it all good or is it going to be a hindrance as well, I wonder? Well, no, because I think that's where it actually matters, is decisions don't happen when there's fogginess about the outcome. And in a way, one of the reasons why we've been sitting on our hands in terms of preparing the future, which is now upon us, you know, um, a sort of changing climate, AI and EO are sort of the best tools we have to actually understanding and predicting how things are going to change. And this is the world of resilience. And so how do we design our cities and design our coastlines to really understand how things are going to change? We can now predict, for example, storm surge using AI. Mm -hmm. So then we can say, well, listen, this is what resilience should look like for the decades ahead. Mm. Slightly off topic, not really off topic, but we've become or we're becoming incredibly reliant on this and just how good this technology is. How is there a danger we become over-reliant on it? Like how safe is the system? Like what happens if it all stops suddenly? Does anyone want to mention um, GPT? What's GPT? Well, you just mentioned it. So I think yeah. <laughs> well, it's the ability of language models to make extremely um, convincing sounding responses. And so we're witnessing this massive change in AI, where instead of putting a question to a search engine, mm-hmm. the AI will provide written a written response. It sounds like a human being. The problem is it does it with such authority that people trust it automatically. Oh, crikey. Yeah. So it's like kind of deep fake technology. That it is. Hear it's, about. A, it's very similar to that, but it's, Where it's, it's everyone recent. thinks it's Tom yeah. Cruise. It's always Tom Cruise for some reason, and then it's not <laughs> Tom Cruise. It's like some kind of weird. Yeah, but imagine a response which is which you know it's it sounds as, as authoritative as an Oxford PhD, but it's yeah. all hallucinated. Okay, well let's think about the future. So we've got this revolutionary, game-changing technology, and we've all given some really interesting examples of that. Where are we going with all this? You know, you talked about weak AI. Right. 
what, what, let's just project ourselves into the future a decade or so. Like, what's coming online? What are we going to be seeing? What's exciting? What's well, terrifying? So, ChatGPT, which is what we just mentioned, can write code. Wait, so, this is this is the the yeah. AI can write it saying, "Yeah, oh crikey, are we going to get into some terrible well, singularity? And it's all going to get paperclip." Thingies and so what it can do, which is really incredible, is it can also write code that goes into a 3D program. So, for example, we could say, hey, write me uh, some code that um, designs a chair, and it'll produce that chair in 3D, and then you can 3D print that. Yeah. So you get a chair out of thin air, a little bit like the Star Trek replicator, if you remember that. But if you could also say, all right, design me a seawall and um, build it in the 3D. Mm-hmm. And the AI will know, as Freddie pointed out, it'll know things that no human being could know, like how that, what the rock's like, what the storm surge is going to be in 20 years, like all those variables. Mm-hmm. It can build into the design of that seawall and then build that in 3D that then goes to the engineers to construct. That's amazing. That is five years away. Well, I think that, that a lot of what chat uh, GTP or GPT, I was confused, um, <laughs> It's predicated on uh, on existing data that humans have already generated. Mm-hmm. So if no one's done the exercise, as a counter argument to your point, uh, if no one's done the exercise of, of actually creating that stone wall, done that case study, you know, correlating with all the different kinds of uh, physical phenomena, then uh, the best it can do, it can probably extrapolate by using an existing knowledge base. And we don't know what level of accuracy it can, it can do that. Have you used Midjourney? Have you used DALI? Yes. And so these, um, these are um, uh, generative tools based on the same foundational models that drive GPT. But they can give you options instantly. So you say, well, listen, can I have a dog wearing a spacesuit? And five minutes later, you have 40 of them. And then you choose the one you like. So imagine that for seawall design. That's very nice. I think these nice things about these generative models like Midjourney is that they all appeal to our human senses. Like we like pictures. Mm-hmm. We're very visual beings, right? We're less better at sound, less better at uh, at smelling things like dogs, but we're very good at like we like pictures. Um, so Midjourney works really well for that. For something like mega projects, we have no idea how to assess that. It's a good question, though. Morale, tell me about your thoughts and hopes and fears for the future and, and, and with this technology. Thank you. Uh, so for me, I think um, the hopes and fears is that I think the EU for AI will really help kind of um, connect us in a sense. So, for example, you know, uh, I don't want to go too much into this, but just to mention like carbon credits on the table, right? So a lot of industries who are going to have to create some kind of emissions as part of their industrial working, they are trying to reach net zero by then maybe, you know, growing some more trees or helping fund somebody who's growing some trees in some other part of the world. Mm -hmm. So using this technology, maybe, uh, you know, a nomad in the Mongolian Gobi Desert can be funded to help restore the nature that it needs or the kind of uh, the grasslands it needs, right? So that's the case. Or a farmer growing a bunch of crops, maybe they can get the information they need on the ground from all this, you know, global satellite data set to say that, you know, their crops might be in danger because of all this data that we're analyzing with the EO4 AI. Or, you know, the miner, the person who has this can then be told, your mine will 
placed in these areas looking very dangerous from our satellite data. So please send more engineers on the ground to help that. So I guess my one is more kind of like infrastructure of society, all these different industries. How can EU for AI combine to become so common that yeah. everyday problems are solved by that? That's interesting. So really, we're looking at the, the health of the planet itself and the various Earth systems, climate, weather, the Earth itself, geology, but also human elements, human geography, if you like. Are, are you sort of suggesting a, a sort of more more equitable world, do you think? Absolutely. And I think that is my hope. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if it's not serving that, why should it exist? <laughs> Sorry, that's a big statement. No, I think it, it is. But my question <laughs> is, it's, you know, does, does, does this technology, which is awe-inspiring, does it then lead to change human behaviour, I suppose, is my question. Or, I mean, the hope it would be, but what we do know is about things like facts do not necessarily change minds. People make decisions based on values, based on trust. And, you know, I, and, I, and I wonder, especially when the, with the speed of progress of this technology, I wonder if it's um, how people are going to react to it, I suppose. I think we are emotional beings, but... yeah. But in the end, um, data is extremely powerful for decision making. We have a problem that the Earths are heating up really rapidly. In fact, the latest reports are looking at between three and four degrees. The IPC reports from last year. That is the end for you know, the human race. Let's not beat around the bush. This is a sterilization event for life as we know it. Imagine every pixel on Earth is currently suboptimal in terms of its carbon sequestration. Could we use AI and EO to look at every pixel and say, listen, if we just crank that up by 5% or 10%, we could start to use the land and use the sea to absorb more CO2. And these technologies allow us to think like that and start to optimize for that future. We have to do it. We have no choice. And we've got about 20 years mm. to pull it off. Remember when I said that it helps to be high enough yes. to, have a, to see the large picture? Uh, not just in space, but also in time. So there's no better way to uh, demonstrate James's point by other than looking at the polar caps and how they shrink and expand throughout the year. And as you look year after year, the shrinking and expansion becomes smaller and smaller and smaller to the point it will, it will flatline at some point. That's it. It is the technology that hopefully will get us out of, uh, it's like us out of the, the, the sort of problems we're in. Because I always, I always think it's not just a question of just turning the taps off. We actually have to be much more fundamental in terms of how we use technology to do things. Well, carbon sequestration is a really good example. And actually, yes, being able to step back from the canvas and look at it gives us gives us that. And tool. I think um, earlier, uh, Freddie mentioned um, about you know sustainable development goals and yeah. how all the technology can feed for that. So you know, in some ways, the power of EO for AI is also in monitoring how yes. well we are going towards the sustainable development goals and kind of keeping governments and companies accountable for that. Mm. It's funny, actually, I was look, looking at the, when you look at the UN sustainable goals, EO and AI are across all of them, pretty much. This is a technology that can be really used across the whole suite of goals that they have. It's really interesting. Actually, you did a white paper on this. I just want to, I just want you to explain. The state of AI for observation. Exactly. Yes. Just, so <laughs> went for, so this, this particular white paper, just explain to us where that came from, like why you did it and, and what were the, conclusions so let me kind of touch on 
the vision of Earth observation, because you know what we do now is towards that those end goals. And the questions we're trying to answer with with Earth observation and something that AI is only helping in us doing is the question: what How can we tell what what happens on Earth based on observations from space? How can we let the the data tell a story of a natural or an anthropogenic phenomenon? How can we meaningfully combine all those sensors, uh, maybe even coming from very fundamental different mechanics like radar versus optical cameras? You know, we're getting all the sensors, how can we place them accurately on the Earth in a harmonious and continuous way? And lastly, you know, all these sensors are really noisy. How do, can we deal with those noisy sources? And how do we know what we don't know? <laughs> yes, the unknown unknowns. Yeah. That's really interesting. How can we get the general population to understand this? Or how do we bring it? Because I, I, I think it's too important to, for it to be stuck in laboratories in Oxford or where, wherever it is. It's too, it's too phenomenal a technology, I think. So this, this report was, uh, was funded and paid for by Satellite Applications Catapult. And like it's, it's aimed towards the general public and yeah. you know any jargon that you might encounter there is like a really nice you have a very nice i read it you have a very nice um uh, what's a the jargonary word? yeah a jargonary. exactly <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, so i think it's reports like these that um allow these new types of technologies to bring them into the public awareness yeah public awareness yeah. exactly exactly i mean when you when you were writing that white paper did you, did you have that in mind was that of that's, a, that's I want it, you know i want everyone to be able to uh, when a day one when when i was hired by sac uh application kind of like what we did it was like a little workshop to say okay yeah. what do we want to do and like the first thing we wanted to achieve was make this uh, these technologies ap approachable understandable by by the public mm. I um yeah I mean when I first really became aware of it when I did that archaeology documentary actually making things like television programs and things that people can conceive of you know discovery in Egypt that kind of thing is a fun way of doing it but I guess climate is the one that's really gonna well yeah I mean I think the thing that'll bring it to life is is AI is now poised to really be a huge tool for disaster response yes so flooding fire tornadoes hurricanes you know this is all stuff which is now possible mm -hmm. and this includes putting ai on spacecraft themselves and so they're able to report you know directly yeah they yeah. did that in 2001 it was called hal it ended really <laughs> really badly <laughs> yeah. there is that thing there is yeah. you know you talk to people about things like ai and of course yeah. they come up with he was he was running chat gpt killer robots <laughs> and how how 9000 computers and there's always that there is something quite sci-fi about the whole thing isn't there and so quite maybe matrixy and quite so ai for eo maybe we need uh, like an identity so maybe yeah. the microscopes in orbit we we should uh, i like that create a cartoon yes, to create brass <laughs> microscopes in, in in orbit listen we're out of time we're running out of time thank you so much for taking the time to come and actually sit in a room as human beings and not do this virtually via ai algorithms i appreciate it. something nice about just talking yeah. to humans you know what i mean especially about this subject yeah, yeah. Oh, you're all excited about it though, oh yeah I, think. I mean we have this analogy a bit like in the movie The Lord of the Rings and all is lost. Heard of it. Yeah. Helm's Deep, the episode two. And then Gandalf Gandalf appears on the on the horizon mm -hmm. with the staff. Yeah. That's like AI right now, I think. 
In what way? I, I don't understand. Well, all of the multitude of problems, they call them, what's the phrase they use? Um, not a polyglot, but a polyproblems. Poly, anyway, so that's, uh, that's the, okay. the, the jargon. A lot of them, I won't say all of them, but a lot of them, I think AI is going to be able to help us to ameliorate. Morale, what's the thing you're most excited about when you turn up to work? What keeps you... Uh... I've, I feel like I've kind of spoken about this already, but mm. uh, I guess yeah, the thing that excites me about is solving kind of almost mundane looking problems, but they really matter. You know, solving the problems of farmers, solving the problems of miners, solving the problems of the everyday people using this technology, because I think that's what really matters for me. One other thought is, you know, we used to be really optimistic about the future. And I think over the last few decades, that optimism has sort of turned into a sort of begrudging pragmatism especially with you know the the amounting problems we have but i think the the thing about eo and ai is it does give us a window of possibility that we can actually turn this around yeah we can the human race can solve this problem i think that's a that's a really good point i think niels bohr the famous danish physicist i remember he said prediction is very difficult especially if it's about the future and actually the problem with that quotation is that actually you don't want to predict the future the, the you want to make the future if you if you have the the information to be able to make decisions to make the future yourself in the way that you want it then suddenly the prediction becomes very easy because you just do it do it how you want to do it my philosophy towards ai is that it's an amplifier of human intent like any technology and what i'm excited about is enabling the right kind of people and you know creating common good uh, this is why in my job I help domain scientists better understand AI, better understand the data that they're using so they can get better at their jobs. It's not about publishing papers, it's not about becoming an esteemed scientist, it's about the end goal, whether I do it through academia or through the industry. Listen, thank you so much, Marl, Freddie, James. An absolute pleasure to have you here in the flesh. It's been great and a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for your company. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, why not visit the Catapult website or you can join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. See you next time.